Welcome to Face Your Faith with West Kenyon. It is our hope that today's study will encourage you to grow deeply in your relationship with God as we study the Word together. Now let's join West for today's study. Today we are going to talk about just two words. The first word is I and the second word is am. And my hope is that these three letters of the alphabet making up these two very simple words will be enough to sufficiently challenge you by the time we conclude. And as I so enjoy doing, we are going to start off in the dictionary and get a good understanding of what these two words really mean for us so we can apply them in the proper context of this message. So our first word, I, according to Collins Dictionary, defines in the following way. A speaker or writer uses I to refer to him or herself. And finally, I is a first-person singular pronoun. Now let's take a look at the definition of am, and Collins states the following. Am is the first-person singular of the present tense of be. Okay, but that makes me a bit curious as to what the definition of be is. So let's take a quick look, and the definition is as follows, again from Collins Dictionary. First-person singular, present tense, and it is also referenced to mean exist, occur, and to take place. So let's put I and M together here, and we have a combined definition of self, who is in existence, and occurring. And this definitively defines the very essence of God. God declaring throughout Scripture that He is, the I am, self, in existence, and occurring. What I find fascinating about this proclamation from God, however, is the fact that He does not use I am as languages require its use in a sentence. If I were to say to you, I am, and stop there, you would very likely inquire of me, you are what? And if I were to insist that there is nothing more to add, I just am, is who I am, you would likely just relent to that being an odd observation of myself and what is ultimately true and move on. And so in order to make sense in our conversations with each other, we need more than just I am in the conversation. But God puts a period at the end of I am which based on what we have just looked at indicates as God states it, I myself just exist. However, when we use I am in a sentence, we always need to indicate what our self being in existence is in need of or the current state of where we are, such as I am hungry or I am happy. But regardless, for us, it remains entirely in the present and in no way indicates the past or the future. But God, by simply stating, I am, as a complete sentence, is indicating here, he, in his own existence, is self-sufficient and furthermore indicates he is existence, indicating his eternal presence. And that concept, I am, is certainly impossible to grasp. Always was, always will be. No beginning, no end. That's entirely too much to fathom. Furthermore, while you might think you are self-sufficient, indeed you are not at all even close to pulling that one off. Every one of us would die quite quickly if we were the last one standing on earth. In that instance, we would truly realize just how insufficient we are without everyone else making our earthly existence possible. And if I spend too much time stewing on that concept, it truly bends my mind. We just don't get in any way what not having a beginning looks like. We have never experienced anything that did not have a beginning and for that matter an end. You may say to that, however, well, I know it's true. God has no beginning and no end because the Bible says it. And that's reality. It's just correct. And that's great. And that's called faith. 
But that does not lessen the inability to wrap our microscopic brain around all this. And this is the awesomeness of God. If we fully figured him out and fully understood all there was to understand about God and get it, we would have no need for him, the great I am, the one who exists because he exists and occurs. Now let's look at our first passage of scripture from Exodus 3.14. And it says, God speaking to Moses, I am who I am. Then God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Okay, then, let's put this into context with our definitions. Ultimately, God said to Moses, self and existence, self-occurring, is self and existence, self-occurring. Then God said to Moses, now go back and tell the Israelites, self and existence, self-occurring, told me to come to you. And perhaps that is where we get our adage, I am who I am and you are who you are. And that very phrase of ours fully attempts, at least in our human standards, to indicate who is in authority. And that is exactly what God is telling us of himself, exactly what God told Moses to go tell the Israelites. I am who I am, and you are not who I am. I am in charge. I am in control. I am the authority and have been the authority all along. But we shouldn't take any of this as negative. Why wouldn't we want someone to take care of us, to supply our needs and desires, and someone we can rely on 24-7? After all, we are the beneficiaries of God's self-sufficiency. Isn't it true that if you are unable to provide for yourself, the first thing to do is to find someone to provide in the areas you can't? And that is exactly what God desires to do for everyone who lets him. Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 3.5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. The problem is, however, We don't often like in-your-face authority figures, even if they take care of us. We want to be taken care of the way we want to be taken care of. And that is exactly what the majority of the Old Testament shows us. And that is exactly how the Israelites lived. Quick side note, we as the church say we are the New Testament church, but we certainly don't live that way because we follow the same Old Testament playbook the Israelites used. Believe God is I am when we are in desperate times and believe we are I am when everything is going right and even in the face of the great I am, allowing it to even go smoothly, we often take the credit and all but forget about God's provisions. But taking God at face value, trusting that he is I am and welcoming his sufficiency in our lives is a struggle. Again and again, we try to one-up God and live sufficient in ourselves. And so to this day, God remains very unpopular. And he remains unpopular to follow because he has boundaries and the boundaries are set in stone. And he makes it very clear that he indeed is, I am, the eternally existing authority. He makes it clear he is who he is and we are who we are. But not out of ego or spite like we might do it. But he does it out of pure love and doing so because he knows what is best for us. And I think this is a great place to shift gears a bit and take a look at just how singularly sufficient and available I am is to all who earnestly seek him and trust him. If we so choose to believe I am is truly who I am says he is. And we will take a look at each instance in scripture where God, Jesus, makes it very apparent that indeed he is the I am. John 6.35 
I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the vine. Here we have seven independent instances where Jesus said, I am, and quite definitively. But simply stating, I am something or someone, does not validate the claim. So let's take a look now at how Jesus substantiates each claim with a promise. Starting in John 6.35, in the same order we just read, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 8.12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10.9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John 14.6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Finally, John 15.5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We see here that not only is Jesus saying he is the one and only, but he backs up each instance with the benefit should you choose to take him at his word. Now, it's important to note that it was the identity of Jesus who told us he was the I am in the seven passages we just read from John in the New Testament. But don't forget, we started off our discussion hearing from God Old Testament in Exodus, making the exact same claim as Jesus when he, God said, I am who I am. And this is one of numerous moments in the scriptures that consolidate the identity of God and Jesus. God as God and God in the flesh as Jesus, undeniably both stating their singular identity. And let's run with that for just a moment, because this is a very challenging aspect for many, including those who call themselves Christians, Christ followers, and that of identifying Jesus as being God in the flesh. Let's take a look at John 8:58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So what is Jesus saying here? I, Jesus, even though I have come long after Abraham, I was before Abraham. And not only that, I was the same I am in Exodus who spoke to Moses. For all intents and purposes, Jesus is telling us clearly here, I started off by telling you who I was and have continued saying the same thing generation after generation. I was, I am then, and I am that same I am right now. Right here in front of you, 100% God, 100% Jesus. Again, if you take God's word, the Bible at face value, there is no way around the singular identity and at the very least of God and Jesus. Let's look at another passage, Revelation 1.17. Jesus said to John, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Revelation 22.13 continues, again, Jesus speaking to John, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And we can back this up by looking at the Old Testament again and hearing what God said, and once again, long before the arrival of Jesus. Isaiah 43.10, God said, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, 
and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Let's follow that up with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. How about John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Let's move on further with John 13.19, as Jesus was discussing his pending betrayal with the disciples. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. As we can see over and over again, everyone heard what Jesus had to say. And today, we are still hearing what Jesus has to say, and the message has not changed at all. I am who I am. I am He. I, Jesus, am God. I have always been, despite my appearing right now in human form, and I will always be because God has always been, and God will always be. The very same God of your ancestors and the very same God looking directly in your eyes right now speaking to you. So why is this such a hotly debated topic? Why has this conversation been the foundation of so many wars, past, present, and wars to come? If this claim by Jesus, God, that they are indeed I am as one, and we saw for ourselves the definition from the dictionary that I am is completely singular, and if these claims are that ludicrous and that unbelievable and pathetic and flat out untrue, Why would anyone have such intense reactions to those who choose to follow that which is nothing but fiction? If it is nothing but an old, irrelevant, completely fabricated man-made fairy tale, why are so many people around the world incensed, angry, hostile, and determined to spend their lives attempting to put an end to nothing? If indeed God is not the one and only He claims, and Jesus is not the one and only God He claims, then what does it matter? Why would anyone waste their time attempting to intervene with what does not exist? And what does it matter if indeed this is all nothing, and I have chosen to believe in nothing? If nothing else, feel sorry for me, and everyone who believes in what you know doesn't really exist after all. Wasn't it sufficient several thousand years ago to put a man to death by the name of Jesus who ran around claiming to be God? Hasn't justice been fulfilled by killing a man who did nothing more than tell people to do good by the world, in addition to helping people, loving people, giving to people, and even healing people? And even if someone comes to you and says you really need to believe in God and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, fully God, fully man, in order that you inherit eternal life in heaven, and you think that is complete bunk, again, who cares? since you know full well where you are going and how you are going to get there, which should render the conversation irrelevant. Correct? So why does it bother people so badly to hear someone's opinion about God? But could it be, since the leader was killed, Jesus that is, and the number of his initial followers continues to grow over thousands of years, and this Jesus thing keeps going, could it be there just might be, somehow, something to it? What other logical reason could so many people have such animosity against an irrelevant belief or religion or person or group of people? And I can say for certain that nothing causes as much chaos as the supposedly nothingness of God and the one I am. And this conversation and the deep desire to rid the world of that which is rooted in the belief of I am and one in the same of Jesus has existed since Jesus walked the earth. 
And for this, we will look back a few thousand years to roughly AD 30, where we will find all of our answers for AD 2024. John 10, 22 through 33. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for your good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you are a mere man claiming to be God. All right, quick summary of our passages there. A group of people who don't agree with what Jesus was doing or believed that he was who he claimed to be, and mind you, they had zero evidence he wasn't telling the truth, and that of his claim to be I am. In addition, it was these very people who were not believing him whose very ancestors heard from that very God directly, are saying once and for all, tell us the truth, tell us plainly who you are, enough of the cat and mouse game, stop lying. So Jesus gave them the same direct answer he had been giving them all along. Notice he hadn't changed his story one time, one question. He stuck with it 100% all throughout the scriptures. Jesus even stuck with his original claim in the face of being killed. And the answer Jesus gave them was fantastic. He said, I already told you multiple times and you are simply not listening because you don't like what I'm telling you. But that doesn't negate the fact that what I say stands. When the people who follow me ask me who I am and I tell them, they say, okay, thank you. You, on the other hand, want nothing to do with me and you'll never be satisfied with my answer. So what's your point? Why do you keep asking the same question? And I believe up to this point even, everyone was still rather okay with what Jesus was telling them. But Jesus then took the conversation down a completely different path. And that, once again, was to combat their pathetic question with a very direct response. Jesus said, I give my followers eternal life and my followers can never be taken away from me. Not by you or anyone else. On top of that, my father gave me these followers. And he, God, the one who told your ancestors, I am who I am, is even greater than the I am, I am, and no one can take his followers away from him. Are you really not getting this? I don't believe I can make what I am telling you any more clear. Then his opponents picked up stones in an attempt to kill him on the spot. And here's why. Jesus made it entirely too clear, and they understood every word he told them. And that is what made them angry. Did you hear? The truth made them angry. And that is quite a common problem among people in general. And so much so, we have an adage about it. The truth hurts. And most of us hate hearing the truth, and we hate to be wrong. And when we are put in our place by the truth, we on occasion want to take revenge. So what exactly was it that got them so riled up? Jesus once again said, listen up. I, Jesus, give everyone who trusts me and follows me a guarantee of eternal life with me. 
in heaven and a further guarantee that there is no one who can in any way undo that guarantee. And furthermore, my Father, the one you know as God, but also the one you are talking to, does the exact same thing. And the reason our stories are identical is because we are one and the same. I am God. God is me, Jesus. What, then, is not clear in what I have told you? Then there is an attempt to retaliate and that of killing him simply for what he said. But Jesus turned the tables and asked them a question. What am I doing that is so wrong? I am doing good, aren't I? So for all the good I am doing, which good thing are you wanting to kill me over? Do you have an answer for that? And their answer was incredibly pathetic. Listen to this answer. We don't want to kill you for any of the good things you are doing. We only want to kill you for what you believe about yourself and are publicly promoting. Here they admit Jesus was truly doing good things. They agreed with that. But the only thing they wanted to kill him for was what he believed. Well, folks, then I am assuming that everybody today should be siding with Jesus on all of this, right? Isn't that the message of the world right now? Be yourself. Be whoever you want to be. You decide who, what, when, and how you will live your life, and you have every right to have full, unhindered freedom, regardless of what you believe and think you are or are not. In addition to all of that, you know you have the right to promote whatever you choose without a shred of evidence of its reality or plausibility, and are able to do all of that with not one peep from anyone, even if it's only to disagree with you, let alone plotting your death over it. Correct? And the slightest thought of wanting to put someone to death for simply making a statement on what they believe to be true and factual about themselves should be understood better today than potentially any other time in history. But is that the case? In our oh-so-politically-correct and oh-so-perfectly-tolerant coexisting society? Ironically, not at all. Because Jesus identifying as God, God in the flesh, and those who follow Jesus today are still deemed heretics, evil, and dangerous, and just as it was then. Now, I have repulsed some and delighted others with what I have said. Some are saying you are a nutjob, extremist, radical Christian, and others are saying, way to go, preach it, brother. But as I love doing, I am going to once again turn the tables and get a bit controversial. As I mentioned in my message, Why We Worship, and other messages I have done, many churches and many Christians are not being good representatives of Christ. Again, Christians who degrade non-Christians are just as fraudulent as non-Christians who degrade Christians. Why do I say this? Because too often Christians, as I mention regularly, are fantastic hypocrites and have placed themselves in the predicament of not being worthy or being listened to or trusted for their testimony. All too many Christians expect the world to follow God, be a believer in Jesus Christ, and only serve God properly, as the Bible says. And if everyone is not on that path and on the same page, then there is no room in society for those people or for their agendas. And that, my friends, is not at all a godly attitude or anything God ever called his followers to act like or think like. Where and when have you read in God's word to force your faith on anyone? Where in God's word have you heard God, Jesus, call anyone to mock, ridicule, hate, despise, and ostracize anyone? That is not the job of a true Christ follower. The Christ follower, the church, as believers in Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is to love our neighbors as ourselves, humbly spread the word of God that we believe to be the truth, and to leave people alone who do not wish to participate in what we follow. 
That is indeed godly living and Christ-like behavior and allows us to be a far more credible representative than we often present ourselves. Mark 8:34, King James Version. And when Jesus had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let me ask you this, Christ follower, church, where do you see in this passage anywhere that we are to browbeat people with God's word and to insist that they follow what we do and how we do it and make sure everyone agrees with everything we do? You are correct. Nowhere. How about we, the church, start setting an example of how to truly live before we tell others how they are to live? Why don't we lead by example first before we expect others to follow our lead? How about we as the church learn what humility looks like? How about we, the church, start loving people as Christ loved us even while we were denying what he told us? Will living a Christ-like life to the best of our ability in humility and love and discipline open the floodgates of the world to accept what we have accepted? No, but that's not for us to concern ourselves with in any way. We are called by God to do one thing and one thing only, and that of lovingly telling everyone what we understand and believe to be true, and let God do the rest, and let God work out Mark 8.34 in the lives of those who wish to follow him. I believe I am is who I am says he is, but that decision is an independent one for everyone else on the planet to make. And I have only one job, to do what I believe is good and right and God-honoring. And whether or not I am loved or hated for it, that's life. I don't tell others about what I believe to be true to win people over. I tell others about what I believe because it is what I believe God has asked me to do and I enjoy it. And the rest is up to whoever desires to do something with that. And my hope is that will be your goal and desire as well. Let's pray. Father, the great I am is who you are. This we believe and this we trust and rely on. We are ever so grateful that you are the one we can call God, Jesus, Spirit, Savior, Redeemer, Provider. You are our sufficiency in all things past, present, and for the future to come. We thank you for your incredible love for us and your incredible patience with each of us. Keep us humble and focused on you and not on our desires and our agendas we think are the right way. Keep us very aware of what it is you expect of us and that we will always desire to follow you to the best of our abilities and not our personal desires. And this we ask in the name of our Lord and our Savior, the great I Am, Jesus Christ.